Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, good news. Last week uh, at our business meeting, we called unanimously Austin Shields to be our new youth director, and uh, he has accepted the call. So. <clears throat> Um, he'll be coming in January, so it's a wonderful trial by fire um, for him from Texas to Illinois in January. Not good planning on anybody's part, but uh, it, it'll be great. Uh, we wanted him to get a real honest taste of, of uh, life in Illinois, so it'll work out. Um, we're, we're talking about specific issues in the Christian life as we go through this discipleship uh, uh, series, and I want to dive into um, really particular issues, and, and one is our attitude. Um, if you remember, Jesus taught uh, a story about uh, a couple of sons. There's, there's one famous one that we all know about, about the one who's the prodigal son, and then there's this other story about two sons where the dad, uh, he asks his two sons to go work in the field for him, and he, he asks the one, uh, will you go work in the field? And he says, sure, sure, I'll go work in the field. And then he uh, turns around and he doesn't go. Um, and then he asks the, the other son to go work in his field. And he says, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And then later on, he changes his mind and he goes and works in the field. Have you heard this story? And so um, Jesus asked which one was obedient. And uh, that's a good question. Like In your mind, which one was obedient? Because he ended up going. But if these were your kids... Would you consider either one of them obedient? Really? Um, when, when we uh, had little kids at home, I remember <laughs> we had one in particular, I won't say which one, <laughs> that was really a, a, a struggle when they're really like three years old or so. The, the, the attitude was um, just hard. Okay, we'd be in the grocery store, and uh, this one kid of ours, um, <laughs> not saying which one, um, would want something, and, and uh, she would just throw a fit. And Molly, this was mostly on Molly. I couldn't handle this. Um, <laughs> Molly would, would take her aside and get her to calm down and get her off of this tangent, you know. Um, and she was able to correct this, this kind of defiant um, attitude, you know. But uh, over the years, you know, in raising kids, and, and as parents, we all understand this, uh, we want our kids to be obedient, you know, to do what we ask the first time. But then also, not just to be obedient when we ask them to do something, but to do it with a good what? Good attitude, or a good heart, or, okay, good heart attitude. And here's what happens is if they do what we ask, but they don't do it with a good attitude, we still consider that they're being disobedient. We did. Maybe you don't. I did. That the attitude was just as important as behavior. And so the two sons that Jesus talks about, one says, oh yeah, I'll do what you're asking, and then he doesn't do it. That's disobedience. Uh, the other one uh, won't do what his father asks, and then he changes his mind. But that's defiance. And so it's, in the Christian life, it's behavior. We have 
faith that uh, brings us into a relationship with God, that brings us into a, a, an understanding of what this relationship looks like um, by the application of grace and the infusion of the Holy Spirit. And now we're beginning to walk according to God's Word, and we begin to change our behavior. We begin to do things differently, right? But we sometimes neglect to talk about the attitude that we should also have about the whole scenario. What, what does this look like? Um, if I'm morally doing what the Bible tells me I should do in front of the people that I work with or go to school with or I'm related to or friends with, but my attitude stinks, do they see a good witness? Is God honored in that? Is, uh, is, it, is it something that God is pleased with? Just that I'm doing the right things? Um, or does he want me to have the right attitude as well? And so what we're going to look at, and this is uh, fairly simple if I can keep it that way, is uh, four things uh, that First Thessalonians teaches us about the right attitude, and then I'm going to infer that there are four bad attitudes that this is correcting, okay? And so let's stand as we read God's Word. This is First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor. Here, I want you to uh, take out your highlighters if you have them, pens. Um, mark up your Bible, the pew Bible. It doesn't matter. Any Bible, mark this up. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly. Circle. <laughs> in love. In love. Because of their work. Um, be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, uh, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Father, we thank you. Uh, there's a lot of instructions in that uh, short passage. Um, Lord, we uh, are asking for your spirit to give us wisdom, guidance, understanding, conviction, uh, strength, grace, mercy, peace, Lord, in all these things, that we would walk in the ways that you would have us walk that if we consider ourselves your disciples, Lord, that we would not withhold any part of our lives, Lord, not our behavior, and especially not our attitude. Uh, Lord, help us to think the way that you want us to, to understand, to have the mindset, Lord, that you would have us have. Um, Lord, and help us to portray something different to the world around us, that they would see that we have a peace and a joy uh, that uh, the world um, can learn from, be inspired by, and, and uh, Lord, we pray, would draw people to know you for your glory, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> kind of joking, kind of not. Um, the first part, I, I honestly, I almost didn't include it in the scripture that I was going to read this morning because... Um, it sounds 
a little bit self-serving, you know, from, from a leader to then preach on, hey, you need to respect your leaders. That sounds a little bit self-serving. It's right here in black and white in scripture. It's not something that I'm making up. It's not my opinion. This is what the word of God says. Um, and I'm going to qualify this really quick before I get into this, this situation, this issue, because I think it's, it's worth saying, I have felt over the years, 16 years of pastoring this church, a tremendous amount of grace and love and encouragement and appreciation. Um, it's, it's somehow infused in the culture of this church, okay? Um, so I'm saying that up front because the next thing that I'm going to say may not sound as encouraging <laughs> to you, but in general, okay, here's the issue, is that we as human beings naturally I don't know if it's part of our sinful nature or if it's just what, okay? But we naturally tend to criticize our leaders. Would you agree? We have a natural tendency to do this because I think the main reason is because we are sinful creatures, number one. We live in a sinful, fallen world. And everyone and everything around us that we experience is fallen and sinful and and flawed. And so... Our tendency is to see the flaw. I, I think part of the reason why is because we were created in the image of God, perfect and good, and we were created to live in a perfect environment, and there's something in us that knows instinctively that that is the right situation. We're supposed to be perfect. Everything is supposed to be perfect. It's not perfect, and our eye goes to the things that are not perfect. Anybody have this tendency to, to pick out and to see almost automatically the things that are wrong in something? Okay, that's not because you're really super insightful. I mean, no offense. <laughs> we all tend to do this. And we tend to do it with our leaders in particular because of something good and maybe something bad, okay? Um, the, the something good is that we want to be led well. We have an expectation for our leaders that they, they are above reproach and that they, especially in the church and in spiritual leadership, that they are living the life that we know all of us should be living. And they believe it and their morals and their, their character and all of it is, is above reproach. We, we want to see that in our leaders. The bad part of it is that there's, there are things that we want from our leaders that our leaders can't ever really fulfill. Okay, let me, let me deal with this um, in this sense. The spirit that we tend to have is a critical spirit, okay? Most people, and I hesitate to say that, but I, I do feel like there's a tendency in most people to have a critical spirit, um, and especially when it comes to leaders. The reason why is because there is sin, and we want to point out sin, and we want to deal with sin, and that's a good thing. We need to deal with sin. Um, but there's another issue, okay? Um, we tend to be critical about things that aren't perfect, but we're also critical about God, who is perfect. In fact, my opinion is, I, I believe, that God, who is perfect, is the most highly criticized being in the universe. Would you agree? Everybody's looking at God and saying, how come he's not doing this? And how come he's doing that? And how come he, he wants us to do, be this way? And, and here's the thing. It's not because there's any flaw in God. It's because God is not 
everyone's preference. And so I had this uh, scenario. Um, how many of you like steak? If you, a lot of steak lovers. What's like the, the perfect steak? Ribeye. I don't like ribeye. Okay, but okay, we'll say it's, we'll say it's ribeye. It's, it's marbled with all kinds of fat and really flavorful. Okay. And so the perfect way to cook a ribeye is medium rare, and it has to be seasoned just right, and, uh, and it needs to be served with a baked potato and a what? Asparagus? Corn? Okay. Corn? Here you are. You've gotten the perfect ribeye cooked to perfection with a wonderful baked potato with all the stuff on it that you like and some corn. And <laughs> it comes out, you can't find a flaw in the meal except, except the corn. <laughs> except I ordered chicken. And here's the deal, is a critical spirit um, that we have to be careful with is that when we're dealing with sin, then there's a, a way to deal with sin. Jesus gives us Matthew 18. He gives us a very clear path. If there's a sin issue, then you go to the person and you deal with them directly about the issue of sin. If they won't listen, then you bring somebody with you. And if they still won't listen, then you get the church involved. Okay, there's a path. There's a very uh, clear process for how to deal with a sin issue. A lot of the time, we're critical, not because of a sin issue, although, okay, how many of us are applying Matthew 18 and, and the sin issues that we see around us? Very rarely do we actually follow Jesus' um, path or his process that he's given us. And he wasn't mincing words about it. It wasn't unclear. It was very clear. This is what we're supposed to do. We tend not to because we, we tend to do one of two other things. One is uh, avoid it altogether. We just hopefully it'll just work itself out. Like we don't want to be the one to have to deal with it, or we'll just go and talk to everyone else about it, not to the person directly, right? Okay. So he gives us a clear path to how to deal with sin. Now here's the other part: it's the preference issue that we are critical not because of something being wrong or flawed, or it's just because it's not how we like it within the church. This is hard for me to say. Okay. Um, it's hard for me to say because it, it could result in somebody realizing that they need to be in a different church. But here's the deal. As leaders, we want everyone to like what we do and how we do it, and what we're saying and how we're leading and how we're teaching and how we're whatever, programming things, planning things, etc., and there are people that are going to never be satisfied with what we do because it's just not to their preference. The style of music isn't what they are looking for. The, the, the mood of, of what we do and how we do it, how we're saying things, how I, how I preach is just not to some people's preference. It may just be a personal thing. I remind them of somebody they hate <laughs> or whatever. 
you know, or it's just like the mannerisms are annoying, or there's just, you know, I, I like it when I have a fill in the blank, and I'm just not getting that here, and all those things. So understanding that sometimes we're critical, not because it's a sin issue, but because it's a preference issue, means that it, I have one of two choices to make here, is I either um, come to terms with my preference not being met, or I go find that preference somewhere else. And when it's not a theological or biblical issue, um, that might be okay for that to happen. And th- this, I don't want to say that because I want everyone to come here. I want this church to be the place where people come and they are fed and they grow and they learn and they, they have community together and where we can do church together. But what uh, we have to come to terms with is the issue that sometimes we're just not going to fit everyone's preference. And in some ways, that's okay. As long as it's not an issue of we're not preaching the word and I'm going to go find the word somewhere else. If that's the case, then we're, we're off and we need to get back to the word of God. Or they are preaching the word and I need to go find somewhere that doesn't preach the word because I don't want to be convicted. That means you're off, okay? But if it's just a style issue or a personal preference issue, then then there may not be a solution here. You see why that's not something I want to say? <laughs> but it's a reality. And, and why that is important is because if a critical spirit is not dealt with in one way or another, then it can become a divisive spirit. And so the next thing that he says is that you need to be at peace among yourselves. And when a critical spirit can't be rectified and reconciled and healed and blessed, and then what's going to happen is there's going to become division. And so uh, the Bible is full of instruction about why division is so harmful. Luke uh, eleven seventeen, Jesus says that any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. Okay, there's a, a clear path in scripture that says that when a uh, marriage is divided, when a family is divided, when a workplace is divided, when a church is divided, when you're divided in yourself, then there's no way for it to be healthy and to grow and to be sustainable. It will dissolve. It will be destroyed. It will destroy itself. Even Satan knew that a kingdom divided against itself won't stand. Satan does not oppose himself. This was the whole issue, that they were saying that Jesus was driving out demons by the hand of Satan, and, Satan's, and Jesus was like, Satan's not that stupid. Don't you understand? Like, Satan wouldn't do that. He knows this. How come we don't know it? And so I'm just going to show you some scriptures that deal with this, because I I don't want us to be um, under any false uh, understanding here, but it says Romans uh, 16, 17 through 18 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. A critical spirit that becomes a divisive spirit is a dangerous thing in the church. Titus 3, 9 through 11 says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, quarrels, about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. They're, they're people that just constantly want to get into arguments and discussions about things that don't really matter um, and make them an issue. He says, and this is strong language here, he says, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing more to do with them. 
You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. That's kind of harsh. <laughs> How many of you knew that passage? Is that new to you? Not something we talk about a lot. Jude uh, 1, 16 through 19 says, These people are grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves, flatter others for their own advantage. Now, this is probably not Christian people, probably not people within the church that are, are um, confirmed faithful followers of Christ who have kind of just gotten off track. These are people that have infiltrated the church in order to destroy it. Okay, this is what I would understand. It says, dear friends, remember that what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold, they said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, do not have the spirit. Now, this is something that the church... Um, can happen in a church. Okay, it was happening in the first century. It could happen now, which is that there could be people that would intentionally, this, this sounds almost bizarre, but would intentionally infiltrate a church, perhaps like ours, who have no desire to follow the Lord, have no desire to learn from Him or to reflect Him in any way, but their desire is to cause disruption, to cause division, to break up the fellowship. There were people, even in the first century in the synagogue, uh, where Jesus was teaching, where they had an evil spirit. You remember this? They came to the place of worship, and Jesus had to drive that spirit out of that person. Do you think that 2,000 years later that that could possibly happen in our day? The problem with our day is that we don't recognize um, evil spirits like that, and so we tend to um, gloss over when people act in a maliciously evil way because we, we don't think that uh, really it's an evil spirit. We just think, well, that person you know, had a bad day. <laughs> but we have to be aware of, of this reality. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says the acts of the flesh are obvious. He starts with sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. But here's an interesting thing. There's a section in the middle. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Eight. Eight of these things that are obviously acts of the flesh have to do with the attitude have to do with this issue of how you approach people in a relationship. I find that very interesting. And so as we come to this divisive thing, here's what I learned in my marriage a long, long time ago. Uh, by God's grace was when Molly and I had a disagreement, um, However this happened, I don't even remember where we learned it or where it came out of in teaching or, or, or what, a book we were reading or a class we were in or something. Um, but we learned not to attack the person, not to call names, not to villainize the, the individual, but to keep the issue the issue. And if you can do that, if you can keep the issue, whatever issue you're dealing with, as the issue, and not 
begin to personalize with attacking the person's character. And you always do this because you're like your mom and you're just a jerk and you're, you know, the things like that that we tend to say when we get mad because we want to win an argument. Anybody ever do that? And what's happening is when you take the issue and you personalize it, now the issue is no longer an issue at all, is it? In fact, how many times do you forget what you're even arguing about? Because it's become personal. And now you've got a bigger issue, which is that because you've, you've created division, now you're, you're starting to crumble. And some people in their marriage, and this is especially for marriage, in their marriage, because it becomes personal so, so often, so quickly, um, the way to unity and peace and reconciliation uh, is harder and longer and, and uh, fewer and far between. And this is where divorce happens. This is where marriages dissolve. This is where families break up. Is because It's not because we've had so many issues. It's because all the issues that we have became personal. A house divided against itself will not stand. That is a basic rule, a spiritual rule in every relationship. As soon as you become personally attacking, you no longer have the ability to deal with the issue at all. And it doesn't matter what the issue is, all all the issues are an excuse to attack the person. It can be as small as, how come you didn't wash the dishes? I mean, I, I have been in trouble for not walking the dogs. I, I hate walking dogs. <laughs> Division is a, a problem. Be at peace among yourselves. This is what I love, is that when God looked at his world, instead of destroying it, which he could have done, he sent his son. God became a peacemaker because that is his ultimate desire is to bring unity, not division. Now, here's something that you're going to say, well, what about this? Um, Jesus, because he is exclusively, exclusively the only way to the Father, is divisive, divisive in himself. If you claim Jesus, then by doing that, you have become divided against the world but you're in unity with God. And you're in unity with all those who trust Jesus Christ. And so you will be at odds with the world around you. This is what Scripture clearly tells us. This is why Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, here's the next thing, is that there's a um, desire to overcome a critical spirit. So the first thing is uh, that we have to overcome, I said a critical spirit. A critical spirit, secondly, that becomes divisive, and thirdly, um, it is cynical. Okay, and so he says here, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. A cynical spirit is when you and I, God's not cynical, you know that? You know that God's not cynical towards you, towards the world, towards human, humanity in general? But we become cynical, and the cynical spirit is when uh, we stop believing in grace. That we don't 
trust that anyone can change or that certain people can change, that we begin to lump people in a category of those people that, that will never get it. And so I'm done with them and I'm not going to continue to bother to trust or hope or invest in. You ever given up on somebody? You don't want to admit it, do you? Because it's, it's like, as a Christian, what you know through God's Word and His Holy Spirit in you is that every human being who's still drawing breath has the potential to be radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And because we believe that, we can't allow a cynical spirit. We have to urge those who are lagging behind. We have to encourage those who are a little bit weak, those who are discouraged. We have to continue to hope and trust and believe and and invest in and apply whatever strength we have to whatever weakness they have. Because there is a chance. And so even if it seems like a, a shot in the dark, we're still going to pray for them. We're still going to believe the best for them because by God's grace, he still believes in the best in you. And if I can change, then they can change. And, and I've seen some people change radically. Have you? I've seen people rescued from addiction. I've seen people rescued from bitterness. I've seen people rescued from uh, sin that was oppressive. Get it, and somehow the Holy Spirit changes their life. And you're like, I, I didn't think that was possible. There are some of you in the room today who you've been prayed for for a long time, and you're here because somebody kept praying for you and didn't give up on you, and they didn't allow cynicism to win. And so we got to be careful that we don't allow cynicism to win when we're dealing with kids, parents. Friends, coworkers, whoever it is, we, we got to continue to pray for them. We got a whole school of our young people um, that we need to continue to pray for. We have a whole community around us that, by God's grace, He can change. And He can use us to help that change. And it's, it's so easy to begin to just isolate and protect and insulate ourselves from the influences of the world. Or else we, uh, we get into this situation where uh, I don't want to be hurt anymore. You ever felt that way? I just don't want to be hurt anymore. I don't want to be disappointed anymore. I was told early on in, uh, in my ministry not to trust people. They will disappoint you. And uh, by some arrogance of my nature, I refuse to believe that. <laughs> I mean, I know that that's possible. I know people will disappoint you, but I'm not going to stop believing in grace. No matter how many times people may fail, I know that... Here's what Jesus said to uh, Peter. Peter said, Lord, how many times should I forgive somebody who sins against me? Well, like up to seven times? pretty gracious. Would you agree? Somebody sins against you in the same way seven times and you forgive them? I mean, that's like, yeah, fool me once. What do we say? Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. And the, the idea is after that, I'm done with you. And what does Jesus say to Peter about that? He says, not 
Seven times. Seventy times seven. You just, and the idea is, as many times as they are going to ask for forgiveness, you're going to forgive them. And you're going to continue to believe in grace, and you're going to continue to extend the same grace that's been given to you. How many times would you need to sin against God, and God's going to be done with you? An infinite amount of times where you're going to come back to God and he's going to still forgive you because he promised that as often as you'll come to him, he will forgive you. And he says, if you're going to receive that kind of grace from me, then you're going to need to give that kind of grace to other people. And cynicism has no place in the Christian's life. That's a, that's a hard one for me. I fight that. I'm going to tell you, I do fight that. And it's not because I don't believe people can change. It's because you do get hurt and you have to continue to come back to mercy and forgiveness and grace and potential and what I've received I need to also give. Amen? Last one here says rejoice always. This is classic, okay, Thanksgiving. 17, pray without ceasing. 18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God uh, in Christ for you. So here's what's going to happen. Those are a response to, I believe, okay, those are the positive to the negative, and the negative is complaining spirit. So we have a critical spirit, we have a divisive spirit, we have a cynical spirit, and then we have a complaining spirit. And the complaining spirit is that nothing is ever good enough. It's a little bit like cynical or like critical, um, but it's, it's just a little bit different. Um, complaining is that here's what I want, and I'm always focused on what I want and what I think I should have and what I think I'm owed instead of what I actually have. And so the opposite of complaining is uh, that we are content. And Paul says, I've learned contentment, whether I have a lot or a little, um, I've learned contentment. Because it's not really about what I have, it's about who I think. When, when you gathered around your table for Thanksgiving, um, you know, I don't know if you talked about at all, you know, how, how God has been good to you this year. Maybe you did. Uh, sometimes you go through a little exercise of, um, you know, what are you thankful for? And, you know, everybody say something that they're thankful for, and the kids are all growing, roll their eyes, like, oh, i got to do this again. And, you know, a lot of times we get caught in this, it's almost a trap, that I'm, I'm still focused on my stuff. And I, and I do this, uh, you know, in my own per personal prayer life. God, thank you for my family. Thank you for my church. Thank you for my health. Thank you for my house. Thank you for all the things that you've allowed me to do and all the things that, you know, you've blessed me with. And, and that's okay. You can count your blessings, but it's not really the point of Thanksgiving is not the stuff. It's who you're thanking. Where does your provision come from? When you sit around the Thanksgiving table, the whole idea was that you were you're thanking God for the provision for the year, that God kept you alive this year. Somehow, you're still here, and you don't have to be. You could have not been here this year. You know that? Anytime, anyone can die, and you're still here. But it's really not even about that. It's about the reality that I have a God who I know. And I have promises that are mine. No matter what else I have, no matter 
the things that I've been able to enjoy or if I had nothing. I still have a God who cares for me, who died for me, who has provided eternal life for me, and I am an inheritor of the kingdom. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an inheritor of the kingdom of God. A son or daughter, brother and sister, okay, with Jesus Christ, which means he's God, but somehow you're on equal footing with him. That's what the Bible tells us. The Holy Spirit in you makes you a new creature in Christ. When God sees you, he sees his son in you. He sees Jesus in you. You understand that that means you have a full inheritance. So, okay, I, yeah, I don't have as many dollars in the bank as somebody else, or I don't have as big of a house or nice of a car. Or, you just think how petty and stupid this stuff is. You know, I, when we go to El Salvador and we minister among people who have literally nothing, that are like the people in the Bible working today for today's food. I mean, I, I don't know how many people I've talked to in El Salvador that have to go on the street selling oranges or whatever they could just to get enough food to buy rice and beans for that day. And they're sometimes just as happy or as more happy than some of us who have stuff that we throw away just constantly. It's not about your stuff. It's about your identity in Christ. So when you have that, little or a lot, really doesn't make a huge difference. So Philippians tells us this, says that our attitude should be the same, this is Philippians 2, as Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he says, the mindset that Jesus had about who he was and his place in the world is the same mindset that you and I can have. That we should be striving for, not just the lifestyle, but the way we understand who we are, who God is, how we relate to everything in the world. And when I say that, what happens is that, I don't know about you, I feel guilty. Do you feel guilty? Like, man, I am nowhere near where I need to be. I want to give you an understanding. There are three options about your mindset. When you come to a point of conviction about the things that we're not quite living up to, and we're, we're not, and this is what preaching the Word of God is really about, is to declare the uh, ideal and saying, how do, we, how do we get there? There are three options. One is um, the guilt option. And, uh, and this is, anybody ever just, you put your head on the pillow at night, it's dark, you're trying to go to sleep, and right away your brain starts thinking about your failures? Does anybody do that? Like, you're not trying to. It's like, I'm not even trying to think about 
what I did wrong. It's just this stuff just starts. And you're like, man, I blew it again. And an option when you hear what should happen and how you should be and how you should, your attitude should be and how your life should be, you, there's an option, which is to let Satan have his turn. And Satan is an accuser and he loves to make you feel guilty and he wants you to feel like you'll never measure up. And when we get spun out in guilt, then this is what we're doing. We're letting Satan just have his, his turn on our heart. Because he loves to do that. The next option, though, is when you can harden your heart and refuse to um, even think about anything that you've ever failed to do. You just build yourself up in, up in pride and uh, I'm going to quench the spirit. I'm going to harden my heart. I'm going to believe that I'm really good and uh, build myself up. Um, that's letting your flesh have its turn. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's too painful to think about my failure, so I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to ignore them. And one of the things that we, I feel like we almost rarely do is we let grace have its turn. And grace having its turn means that as soon as I feel that guilt, instead of letting Satan run with it, I let the Holy Spirit take that sense of not quite living up, and I say, God, thank you for revealing that to me. I'm sorry for how I've fallen short of that, and would you help me to do better next time? Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit does help you to feel guilty, but only for a very short amount of time. It should not keep you up all night. You bring that to the Lord, you say, God, I confess. And God, thank you that you still love me. Thank you that your grace is enough. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is empowering me. Thank you that I can do better tomorrow, and I will. And, I, and remind me, remind me of that moment of guilt so that I can have a victory tomorrow. Because when you leave this place in just a few moments, I don't, I don't think that God wants you to feel beaten down. I think God wants you to feel empowered to do what he's calling you to do. Amen? We leave with a brighter countenance, like we've met with God, he's spoken to me, and I'm ready to do what he's calling me to do. He's called me to be an example to the people around me because I want them to see what it looks like to have a godly attitude, not just godly behaviors. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are willing to share with us your spirit, share with us your attitude, share with us a new heart to enable us to live in, in a way that honors you, not just with moral behavior. Lord, we do pray for that. We want to live in a way that exemplifies um, the, the lifestyle of Jesus, but we also want to live in such a way that our mindset is the same, or at least it's striving to be more like the attitude of Christ, to be joyful in our difficulties even, be joyful in the things we don't understand, that we're improving, that we're changing, that we're 
beginning to accept that the failures are forgivable because of your grace. And the potential is awesome because of who we are in Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have called us into a new mindset. And we, we give you all the glory for that. Lord, I pray that not only would you raise up your people to have a new mindset, but Lord, if there's anyone this morning who needs to have a, a new life, a new mind, a re, reformed heart, Lord, I pray that this morning would be the time where Jesus would become real and take up residence in their heart. And we would accept that. Father, we thank you. There's a, a movement, Lord, of your spirit to, that we need to get on board with. Lord, I pray that you would move and that we would move with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning. This, this is hard, I think, in a lot of ways because there's so many different things that may be going on in your mind. Um, but if the Lord is addressing an attitude that uh, you need to just lay down at, at the cross, then I pray that you would do that this morning. Just come and lay it down and say, God, I'm going to replace this bad attitude with the good one that you want for me. Amen? Let's stand and sing.